Charlie, it's not even 11.15. We did good, brother. Getting you up here with plenty of time. You got till midnight. I don't, but you do, so. <laughs> Amen. All right. You all know, who doesn't know Charlie? Anybody not know Charlie? You're in for a treat. Uh, Randy doesn't, he said. Um, I met Charlie in Honduras, and it's been a blessing. How long has it been now, Charlie? We've known each other. It's been a while, right? Since 2010, so 14 years I've known Charlie, and he's been consistent, faithful, on fire, and a man of God since the day I met him until today. We're honored to have him speaking this morning. He's going to share with us. Come on up, Charlie. Amen. Father, I thank you for who you are. That you're a merciful God and a faithful God. And I pray that this morning, Holy Spirit, that you would touch hearts and open up our understanding to see how loving, how merciful, and how faithful you are. And I thank you now in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> For those of you that wasn't here last week, I'm telling you something. That woman's got a testimony. And mine might not seem so dramatic as hers and the things that's going on in her life, but I'm of the opinion that God does not do things halfway. He didn't halfway save me. He didn't halfway change my heart. He did a complete job. And it comes when it comes to healing, I, I have the same standard, I have the same opinion because of what's going on in my life. And I can't go back to all the circumstances that took me to Honduras. I wrote a book uh, in 2018 uh, called The Intervention of God. And it was a divine intervention the day that he touched my heart in that bar in St. Petersburg, Florida, 54 years ago. But I have to tell you, I, I don't have the time, really, uh, I suppose, to relate to you how... I got to Honduras, so I'll, I'll just start there when I got there. That was a miracle to begin with. Uh, 2012, I was living on a mountain uh, by myself. Well, I mean by myself. Uh, I was the only gringo on that mountain. And they love the people down <laughs> the people down there 
loved to call me gringo. And it was a very, very dangerous place to live. And after I'd been there for a while, uh, I'd be walking down this dirt road to a pulperia, a place where they sell uh, snacks and the basic amount of uh, kinds of food. And uh, I'm, walking down, <laughs> I'm walking down this mountain to this store from my house. And uh, this voice behind me said, Gringo. And I said, where, where? <laughs> and then I, I, I was going to this church down there, and I met these uh, two brothers. One was a gigantic guy, like this guy back here next to Mike. And uh, his name was David. His brother's name was Elvin. And they lived in this town about probably two and a half hours from where I lived. And they asked me one day to go to this town called Teupacenti. So I went down there. And we went to his mother's house, their mother's house. You wouldn't believe what that place looked like. You've been down there, Herb. Uh, you've seen some pretty bad places. I think your daughter did too, if I'm not mistaken. But this was worse, 10 times worse. <laughs> so I got a hold of, after I was down there, I called some friends of mine, a retired Air Force colonel in San Antonio, and I sent them pictures of this house. And they said, uh, <laughs> we're going to send you $7,000 to build that woman a house. So a couple weeks later, we went back down there to uh, Dave and Elvin's mother's house. Everything had been taken out that she had was taken out of the house already. It took five of us 45 minutes to totally tear the red the house down and clean off the concrete pad that it was on. They had no electricity. No running water. And we started building that house. This was in 2013, I think it was the, in the middle of their, their summer season, which is when our winter is. And uh, we're building this house. Dave and, and Elvin was the worst 
drug dealers and criminals in that town. They got saved uh, a couple years before uh, I was down there, moved down there and became acquainted with them. I went down there in February of 2007. So uh, we're building this house and I was staying at this pastor's house and I had a little room to myself. And I get up Friday morning and I'm working, I'm laying cinder block, I'm cutting lumber and I'm fine. I was in good shape then, not like I am now. So uh, we're working through the day and we quit about uh, four o'clock. It was kind of kind of hot there because it's down in a valley between some mountains. You've been there, Brent. Uh, so I had supper when I went over, went, uh, got back to the pastor's house. And I went to bed. In the morning, I was totally paralyzed when I woke up. I could not move my hands, my fingers, my feet. All I could do was breathe. <laughs> I laid on the concrete floor there for an hour before somebody came, uh, the pastor come up to the, where the room was and knocked on the door. And he said, are you all right? I says, no, I can't get up. You got no idea how blessed you are to be able to walk. I was laying there totally helpless. I'm a pretty big guy. And I was, I was healthy, I was strong. And to lay there on the floor and not be able to move. David and Elvin come over to the house about a, a half hour later and pick me up and laid me on the bed. And they asked me if I should, if, they, if I wanted to go to a hospital down there. Well, I didn't really want to go. But <laughs> because I had, my faith was in, in God. But after some pressure applied, I, I agreed to go to the hospital over there. And uh, they took some blood, it cost me $25. They took some blood and an hour later, they come back uh, to where I was at and they said, uh, Here's a couple pills, 
go home, you'll be all right in a couple of days. <laughs> well, they got a hold of Soyla, who lives in San Antonio, but she was down there on a mission trip at the time because she was going back and forth. And she drove from, from, uh, from uh, Tegucigalpa down to uh, Teupacente, and she was uh, come over to where I was at. And uh, she said, you want to go to, uh, you want to go to the Veterans Hospital in San Antonio? And I hemmed and hawed, and we was talking back and forth for about a half hour. She said, you got one more chance to go or not. She called her son, who worked, worked for United Airlines, and got me a ticket uh, to go back to San Antonio. So I flew first class. <laughs> what a treat that was. Uh, to San Antonio, and I go to the Veterans Hospital there, and they put me in this uh, Audie Murphy Rehab Center. I had to be carried. When I was laying in that bed, David and Elvin would bathe me, they would shave me, they would feed me, they would turn me over in bed at night, It was horrible, because I'm kind of independent, which sometimes is good and sometimes it's not. <laughs> so uh, I get to the hospital up there in San Antonio, and uh, they take me to the emergency room and then up to a room, and they drew blood, they, they uh, CAT scan, uh, EKG, they did a uh, MRI, they hooked a computer up to my head, I told them that was a waste of time, <laughs> and uh, about three or four days later, they come into my room and they closed the door, there was five doctors. And this guy that was a neurologist that did the brain scan, uh, he was the best one in that area. They walked in the room and they closed the door. And they said, Charlie, uh, we got some bad news. We don't know what your problem is. We did all these tests, and we can find nothing wrong. And we can't give you any medicine because we don't, we don't know what the problem is. And uh, <coughs> they said, uh, you might be like this the rest of your life. And they turned around and walked out the door. When they closed the door, you know, you, you, gotta, you gotta get this. You gotta understand something. 
you're in a spiritual battle, whether you like it or not. And whether you're a Christian or whether you're not, you're in a spiritual battle. And it has eternal consequences. When they went out and they closed that door, I said, in the name of Jesus, I reject what they said. I, 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 I refuse to accept what they say, what they told me. And I had all these thoughts racing through my mind when they said that, that I would, there's a, a, a real great possibility that I'll be like that the rest of my life. And the enemy tried to put fear in my heart. And every day, I would be praying and there was people in Africa that knows me that was praying for me. There was people in Mexico that know me that was praying. There was people in Canada that know me that were praying for me. There was people in Jamaica that know me that was praying for me. I'd been in the hospital for about probably two, two and a half, maybe three weeks. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I, I, they had pillows behind my back. But if I remember right, it was three or four pillows behind my back propping me up. And I turned my shoulder to turn in bed, try to turn in bed and my arm went over the railing. <laughs> and I started feeling tingling in my fingertips. You don't know the joy of feeling having your senses coming back. That you don't have to be spoon fed that people don't have to bathe you and shave you and clean you up and turn you over in bed. God doesn't do things halfway, folks. Amen. About 30 days after I'd been in that hospital, I was released. When I, when I was walking out of that room, the doctors and the nurses that was taking care of me, there was a, there was a couple of nurses and doctors, a doctor that was standing at the desk where the nurses were. And I walked out of that room and I said, have a good day. And they just kind of looked at me because God did a divine miracle in my life. He interceded where there was no hope or help. 
There was nothing those doctors could do to bring, that, bring my senses back, my sensations back. I walked out of that hospital with no help, no cane, no wheelchair. I walked out. That was God. My Bible tells me that God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't love me any more than he loves you or any less. Everything that's going on in your life and in your your, your grandparents, your parents, all down through the eternities of your family history was designed to bring you here that you might see and bear witness to what God can do. Psalms 96, because I got to put some... I gotta, <laughs> I got to put some Bible in here. The Bible says in, in Psalms 96, verse 3 Declare his glory among the people. No, excuse me. Declare his glory among the heathen. Is there any heathens in here? Is there, is there anybody that does not believe in Jesus Christ? Is there anybody that denies what the Bible says? The Bible says in, in uh, Isaiah 53, the last part of that verse says, By his stripes we are, present tense, healed. This 82-year-old man is standing here today healthy, not bent over because of the grace and the love of God. Amen. Psalms 105 The first verse says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord Call upon his name, make known his deeds among the people. And what I'm doing here, and what Amanda had done last week, and what's coming next week, is to declare his glory, his power, his victory, his joy, his peace. And if you don't have peace in your life, there's something a little kilter, something a little off somewhere. And it's probably because of your relationship that you have with God. And the only way you get that relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. The only way you get that peace is through Jesus. Psalms 107 Verse 2 says, Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom the Lord hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. I've been redeemed 
by the blood of the Lamb, it says in, in Revelation, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. I'm healthy today. By the grace of God, because of what Jesus did, even before he went to the cross. He was beaten 39 times with a cat of nine tails for our healing. And that's not the only time that he has healed me. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom the Lord hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy. I've been redeemed. And I've got the power of God in this body to put the enemy under my feet to defeat his lies that he puts through your mind because that's where the battleground is. Telling you that you're worthless, you're no good, and nobody loves you is, the, is a lie. If nobody else in this entire history of mankind had never repented of their sins and it was only you, Jesus Christ would have left the glory of the sinless atmosphere of heaven to die on that cross just for you. Excluding everybody else, he'd have done it for you. One of my favorite verses is 3 John verse 2. It says, Beloved, you are beloved. No matter what you've done in your past, you are beloved. Beloved, I would above everything, my wish, my desire, my hope, my hope for you, my, my, my love for you, I would above everything else that you would prosper and be in health. Is that a lie or is it the truth? Then it's got a comma, at least in the King James. It says, even as your soul prospers, the more your relationship with God is richer and fuller and deeper. Those things are happening. And it doesn't mean that you have to have a bank account like Jeff. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're rich in financially, but you're rich in your relationship with God. Sorry to point, point you out like that, Jeff. <laughs> there will be people knocking on your door tomorrow. <laughs> but it says, even as your soul prospers, I would that you would be in health. Are you healthy today? God can heal your heart. He can heal your body. He can do the miraculous. I've seen it. That book that I wrote was 38 chapters of major miracles that God has done in my life since I became a Christian. That's why I got the faith that I have. Father God, 
I got one more story to, to share with you. You wonder why I'm emotional. You wonder why I cry. Because I've seen the goodness of God. A year ago, last July, I went to the VA clinic over on Main Street in Newark. And he, he, they took some blood. And he said, are you doing okay? And I said, yeah, I'm doing fine. He said, do you get enough sleep? I said, I get more than enough. And he said, uh, we, we took some blood and we found out you have cancer. And I kind of looked at him. He said, I'm telling you, you've got cancer. When somebody hears that word, it's, they believe it's a death sentence. This thought comes into your mind, you're going to die. Well, that's what happened to me. And I didn't tell Brad or anybody else about this. And they said, we're going to send you to the oncologist over at, over at Knox Community Hospital, to the oncology department, and have them look at you. So I went over there about a week later, I think it was. And they did what, I, what they call a, a PET scan or a PET scan or something like that. And they put this uh, nuclear stuff in my blood system. That's why I glow the way I do. <laughs> and they did a, a CAT scan, and they did an MRI, and they said, you've got, a, uh, you've got cancer, colon cancer. They said, you've got three options. You can do surgery, you can do uh, radiation, or uh, uh, chemistry, chem uh, chemo. See what happens when you get 82. <laughs> Thank you. It's just begun. So uh, I said, I'm not, I'm not doing radiation, and I'm not, I'm not doing the chemo. And he said, well, you got surgery. He said, we can do surgery. I said, well, I've made plans already to go to, to Israel. So we'll talk about it. I didn't concede to the surgery. So I said, I, I'm going to Israel. And when I get back, we'll talk about it. Uh, Brian. Can you put the pictures up there for me? So I'm over in Israel, and I'm in Jerusalem. And I'm walking 
all over Jerusalem. I mean, I walked from the hotel to the old city or where the temple area is, which was about a mile and a half. And I'm walking all over the place. On the way back to the hotel, I, I, was, I had to walk up this kind of steep hill. And I was tired, I was really tired. And it took me quite a while to get back to the hotel. But I was over there for two weeks doing all this walking. And I was going to fly out on Friday morning. And it seemed like everything was okay Thursday when I went to bed. So I woke up Friday morning and I had to go to the bathroom. It was really a lot of pressure building up. And I started bleeding. And I lost a massive amount of blood. I got up and I, I went, got to the edge of the bed and I was getting dizzy and I fell on the bed. And after, a, after about 15 minutes, I felt a little bit better and I got up and I had to go to the bathroom again and I lost some more blood. After that, I got, I, I, got a shirt on and I went down to the desk and said, I gotta, I gotta see a doctor or somebody. So they called a doctor in. This is about seven o'clock in the morning. And uh, doctor charged me $200 to examine me in that hotel room. He sent me to the emergency room. That cost me $75. And I get to the emergency room, and they did some more tests. So the doctor come in to the emergency room there where I was at in the cubicle I was in. And he said, uh, we're going to have to do surgery. I said, how am I going to pay for this? He said, don't worry about it. I said, well, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want no surgery. He said, well, it's that or you die. Well, I, it didn't worry me about dying, you know. <laughs> I said, I've, I've lived, well, at that time, I was, what, 80, 80 years old? And I, I've had a full life. He said, well, I'll give you a few minutes. He said, uh, make up your mind. So he come back and I said, all right, let's do the surgery. So it took him a while to, to get the surgical team together. At midnight, they took me up to the operating room and they got these IVs in both of my arms. So I'm stretched out on this operating table and i seen this magnificent, pure, ultra-bright light 
and it, it wasn't, the lights for the, for the surgery was not on. But uh, <laughs> that was God reassuring me that it was going to be okay. So I just laid there and, and relaxed, and they shot this whatever it was. It was marvelous stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Surgery, they took out uh, two feet of colon. There's two hours of surgery. And I woke up in, my, in the recovery area, and they said, well, we took out two feet of colon, and we, we got it all. So I was in the hospital for a week. Did you show them pictures? Bummer. <laughs> that young man in between, that guy with the beard, that guy with the beard's name is uh, Itamar. He's a friend of mine over in Israel right now in Jerusalem. The guy in the middle, uh, when I was there, was dying of cancer. He didn't speak English. Itamar does, uh, more or less. So anyway, I'm, I'm in the hospital over there. And the teenagers over there, twice a week, come into that, into the hospital, and they go to every room and singing music, singing and, and playing guitar to cheer the people up. Twice a week, the teenagers do. And they come into my room, they're, and they're right there, they're playing, they're singing uh, uh, hallelujah, because that's the only song that they knew that I could understand. <laughs> and that girl there with the guitar is the only one that spoke English in the, in the whole clan. So I had just had a marvelous, awesome time there. Itamar come back a week later. I mean, he was coming there every day after he got done work. He worked for a, a messianic dentist over there. He was a, uh, more or less a bookkeeper. You'd, you'd love that over there. And uh, he would come every day after work and see how I'm doing. So a week later, they released me. And he, it, this was a Friday afternoon when they released me. And he drove me from from uh, that hospital to the airport in Tel Aviv. If you take the train from, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, it takes about 45 minutes. It took about two and a half hours. Every Friday afternoon, things begin to shut down at noon. That man was pressing his luck as far as the traditions of the Jewish people are and not working after sundown. Because by the time he got me up there to the airport and with the traffic and driving all the way back, it was close to sundown when he got back. And that's a no-no in Jewish tradition. So I get to the airport and it's, my flight was supposed to have been a week, the, uh, the Friday before that. So it cost me $800 to fly home. 
The thing is, when I checked out of that hospital, they never charged me a dime for that surgery. If I'd had that surgery here, it'd have been over $100,000, easily. The Arab doctors and the nurses and uh, the, all the medical staff in that hospital get along just awesomely great. They are friends. I can't say enough about them people. If you, if you know me on Facebook, I know some of you probably are not too involved with that, but I am. And it, every day, just about, I'm posting pictures about Jerusalem, about Israel, and how great they are and the kind of people they are. They didn't have to wipe out that, that surgery and that hospital stay. There was, I just want to tell you one more thing. I was, well, I could go on. But anyway, that hotel where I was staying, the Tower Hotel in Jerusalem, across the street, there was some uh, Arab people running this hamburger stand. Do you ever have hamburger over there? Not. Low life. <laughs> this hamburger stand, if you go over there, Brad, you've got to go to where that is. It's across from the Tower Hotel in Jerusalem. This hamburger is like this. And the French fries, you've got a plate like this. And I walk in there, and they said, do you want, do you want bacon? <laughs> on your hamburger. Well, that kind of shocked me, you know. <laughs> I said, no, it's fine. He said, I'd been going there a couple times, about three or four times, and, he said, and this Arab guy who owned the place said, it's, it's a joy to see you here. And I said, why? He says, because you help protect our country. Every guy said that. You talk about a mind blower. And around the corner from my hotel, there was a little laundromat that these, uh, this, I guess he's about 14, and his brother was about 10, would wash our clothes for people, you know? And I had a great conversation with this kid. His dad, his dad gave him the responsibility of running that thing after he got out of school and running that laundromat. Just great people. The love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts that we might be an example of who Jesus is. That divine intervention in your life right now, the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to your heart, and, he's, and, and the Holy Spirit said, give me your heart. No matter how you feel or what you think or what your emotions is, 
And what's ever going on in your life, he says, I love you. And I want to give you new life. Brand new. I want all your heart. He gave his all for us. Why can't we give him, his all, give him our all? When I got saved, November the 16th, 1969, down there in Florida, I told God I would go wherever he wanted me to go. And I would do whatever he wanted me to do. And I would speak whatever he wanted me to speak. And for the most of the part of them these last 54 years, I've tried to do it. I've been to some dangerous, dangerous situations. Not only down there in Honduras, down in Colombia, South America, and over in Africa, over in, in Kenya in 2004. God is good. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And he'll never fail you. If you put your trust in him. Believe in him. He came and died for you. He, he came to save you. From an eternity in hell where you don't want to be. Because once you get there, you're never getting out. And the love of God stops when you go walk through them gates into hell. You'll be in a place without God. And you'll be alone. Praise the Lord. Amen. Brian. Love you too. It's a real honor and uh, privilege to have Charlie with us, isn't it? It really is. It's quite an honor for us. And all we did to deserve Charlie is love him, right? That scripture has been ringing uh, in my heart. I know the Lord gave that to me, and I know you sang it about Jesus being a ransom because there's someone here that needs Jesus. I want every eye closed, every head bowed, please. I'm making this appeal from the sincerity of my heart.